Good morning, everyone. Yes, Mark chapter 9, from verse 30 to 37. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Hi everyone, today we're taking a short break and spending time in the Gospel of Mark. The title of today's Bible talk is called How to Be Great According to Jesus. I want you to think about uh, the greatness of the person who wrote this book of the Bible, Mark. His name is John Mark, and it's thought, church history tells us, it's thought that he gathered all his information uh, from sitting under the teaching of Peter, as well as walking with Jesus as a follower too. Uh, Mark was close to Paul, and he went on a few mission trips with him, actually, in the book of Acts. Soon after that, he planted a church somewhere in Egypt, and then soon after that was killed by natives during a feast for their god, Seraphis. Mark was, by all accounts, a great disciple of Jesus. And that brings us to today's exploration of Mark's gospel, greatness. I have a question for you to think about, too. What would make you great today? What would make you great? What is greatness defined as in your life? For example, in my own generation, a lot of us are having a midlife crisis, a quarter-life crisis, they call it, because of the anxiety of having a great career, of balancing work, life, our environmental impact. We just feel so crippled by life that we don't know how to be great, and it's actually really hard. Moreover, a lot of us think we're wasting our time on the wrong job, Our job isn't great, the career isn't off to a great start, are we actually having a great impact that we would like to have? But we're not sure about what to do next. We want to be great, part of a great company, but it messes with us because we don't feel like we're that great as people. It's a real challenge, isn't it? Well, what would make you great? Give it some thought. Today, we're going to meet 12 guys who found themselves in the presence of true greatness, what true greatness actually looks like, but... They were too busy arguing among themselves to understand and appreciate just what was going on. They were too busy about making themselves great and realizing how great it was they were with this person. They missed it because they made it all about themselves. Now, before we go on, it's important to understand that the pursuit of greatness isn't wrong. God has designed all of us, hardwired, if you will, to seek glory and greatness and awe. And in 1942, C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia books, wrote a sermon called The Weight of Glory, if you want an extended treatment on greatness. Do have a look. It's a short, great talk. Whether it's a nature or a beautiful scene or artwork or music, the birth of a baby, 
a wedding. We love to be amazed. We love great things. We long to be great people. And so what we need, actually, is a redefinition of greatness to the proper object, to attach ourselves to this proper object of greatness, because God has given us a desire for this. But what God refuses to do is to define greatness in terms of what so much of our time is spent doing. So, it's at this point that we meet 12 guys in Mark 9, 30 to 37, struggling with greatness too. I have uh, three ideas that I want to draw out from this passage about greatness and following Jesus to see what Jesus says about it and then conclude with three more thoughts as we wrap up. So at this point in Jesus' life, he's not interested in being around crowds anymore. Mark 9.30 says, They went on from there and they passed through Galilee. And he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know. He was teaching the disciples. Right now, it was a time to teach, not to do public ministry. Jesus wants to spend the little bit of time left he has before his crucifixion teaching his followers about what will happen to him and how central to the kingdom of God this is, how central to God's kingdom breaking into our world through his death and resurrection is. So what is this teaching Jesus is going on about? Mark 9, 31. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, in three days he will rise. So the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. He pulls it from Daniel chapter 7. Then he projects it on himself in the sense that he has a special kind of authority and relationship to God as the divine one, who at the same time shares our humanity, Son of Man. And these disciples, they're to be witnesses to the Son of Man, to Jesus, and participate in his kingdom work. These 12 men are the means by which the gospel was spread out into all of the world. And it's by the death and resurrection of Jesus, his crucifixion, that the entrance to God's kingdom is now made open for all. And so while Jesus is alive for these next few moments, he's focused on making sure he can impart to them as much as possible the significance of this event, showing just what his kingdom looks like. You know, practically, that means for us too, as we take our place in God's great story, we need to learn the language of his kingdom how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is central to all we believe and teach and do. And right now, the disciples don't get any of that. They're students who don't grasp what the teacher is teaching. Look at verse 32. They did not understand. Now, this teaching time, this is the second time Jesus uh, has instructed his disciples on this matter. There's a few of them in Mark's gospel. Uh, Three of them, actually. Mark 8, 31 where we are today, and later in chapter 10, 33 and 34. They're called passion predictions. And each one, the disciples, fail to truly grasp the significance of it. And Jesus needs to reteach what discipleship and following him is all about. And right here is the first redefinition of greatness that Jesus wants his followers to know. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. The first thing we see is that greatness is the way of the cross. You see, greatness usually isn't defined by death. There are some cultures in the world who do exalt death as a means of greatness and gain, but it wasn't the Jews, and it wasn't death by the Roman art of crucifixion. This was a death reserved for criminals who committed treason, and it was never celebrated. And the reason Jesus died such an ungreat way was for the great love that he has for ungrateful sinners because of the problem of sin, you see. 
And so because God is holy and glorious and good, he seeks to realign you and me to what is truly great with himself. And that only happens through the way of the cross. And so then Jesus teaching this arrives at a place at Copernicum and he decides to rest at the home of a friend of the family, Mark 9.33. Now along the way in this journey of teaching about greatness, the disciples have been following behind Jesus, not quite next to him. They're talking, they're discussing. And Jesus asked them when they get to this house, hey guys, what have you been chatting about? Mark 9.33. And as they hear these words come out Jesus' mouth, it says they all kept silent. A look of busted runs across their faces like the child get caught, who got caught eating from the stash of Fredo frogs. They all stand there and shuffle their feet. They look down. Why? What was so shocking that no one dared talk? Well, this is the next point. Sin wants to be great. Mark 9.34, they had been arguing about who was the greatest. Do you see, the truly great one a few moments ago had told them that greatness is the way of the cross, but the disciples are heading full speed in the other direction. They've just spent the last few minutes arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And in doing so, they've turned into little children fighting over their turn on the iPad. These guys have been using their position and time with Jesus to leverage and make themselves great. Just notice what the wrong pursuit of greatness does to you here, as it did the disciples. It says they argued. Why? Because so often, our own way of greatness comes into conflict with someone else. When you start to build up your own empire to make a name for yourself, all goes well until another kingdom builder comes along and challenges you. Their borders creep into yours. Their greatness starts to compete with your greatness. It attacks your little kingdom. It competes with you. And you get angry. Now, for the disciples here, they were arguing actually about eschatological greatness. That is, who will be the best in the kingdom of God? When Jesus reigns, when Jesus rules, what would their position be? Now, I'm rather sure that you haven't had an argument with someone this week about that. And it does sound a little bit strange to argue over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. But we're not Jewish, and so we need a little bit of background to appreciate their argument. The Jewish rabbis long debated about who would be sitting in the place of greatest honor in the kingdom of God. And as I was reading through this, it seems that there are a few rabbis with different views who said righteousness and justice would have the greatest seat. Other rabbis said how much you knew of the Torah and your good deeds, that got you the best seat. A few said the best teachers would have the seat closest to God, but all of them agreed that a martyr would have the greatest seat in the kingdom of God. And so this conversation was happening in Jesus' day. And for the band of disciples to hear Jesus talk about dying, it would have set to their minds this idea of being great, thinking of a few martyrs of the Old Testament, maybe, or the prophets. And then isn't it a short jump for Peter to say, hey, well, Matthew, just look what I've done since following Jesus. I know this part of the Torah. Oh, and don't forget that Jesus changed my name, Matthew. I mean, that must count for heaps. I was, uh, right? And well, you can kind of see how it spirals down out from there, can't you? Each started thinking and appealing to their own ability, their role, their rank to decide who'd be positioned where in God's kingdom. They'd thought that somehow they could affect their standing before God or their sitting before God on the basis of what they could do or what they have done. And that, my friends, is sin. It fills us with the desire for our own greatness, puffs us up, makes us the centre of the universe. And in this case, it causes us to forget God to forget about, as the disciples did, the road to Jerusalem, which way they were on. They didn't grasp 
as the other disciples did, the death of the Son of Man, his resurrection, the new life that he calls them into. Sin makes Jesus and his kingdom so small it doesn't matter. Sin exalts me, deflates God. And it begs the question at this point, really, are we disciples that have a misguided desire for greatness? Will we walk in the footsteps of Jesus? Have we forgotten the road that we're travelling on too? So, sin wants to be great. But, and this is the third point that we need to be reminded of, greatness is right in front of us. Hearing their deaf reply, Jesus sits down and calls over to them, Mark 9.35, a little child. So sitting uh, is the standard posture of teaching in Jesus' day. Just think about it. The Son of Man sitting at the feet of silent, sinful people about to teach them what greatness really looks like. And it's mind-blowing. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So you want to be first, Peter? John? James, you want to be first? Well, be last, and not only be last, be the servant of everyone. Or to say it another way, put everyone before you and be outstanding as you serve them all. Now, servant here really refers to the activity of being a servant, not the condition of being one. So you don't have to go and sell all your possessions. Uh, That's not what Jesus has in mind. That's not going to make you great. Nor is Jesus assuming a poverty theology here that says you're to be poor, shun money, live off the little that you can. The deeper meaning comes from verse 30 and 32. Jesus will suffer to serve. He'll make the disciples great, not because they can do anything, but because his greatness will lift them up and then walk in his footsteps, serving, suffering, trusting your life into the hands of this God. Here's the thing. We become great when we give up any notion of being great. Assume the life of a servant of all, just like the one who came to serve us did. After all, discipleship isn't adding Jesus to my life. It's collapsing more of my life into him. And at that point, we're free to see that we can serve all people, the least, the last, the lost, and the lowest, as well as the rich, the self-righteous, the religious, not for my own sense of worth or out of frustration or obligation, but joyfully in the way of Jesus. But Jesus goes further. He's already called a small child over. And he puts this child in the middle of the room. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but the one who sent me. The child here is an example of the little insignificant ones whom followers of Jesus are to receive. This verse isn't talking about childlike faith. So let's flesh this out. First of all, children were not spiritual paradigms in Jesus' day. A child needed guidance, help. Often in our day, we idolize our children, pouring money, time, energy, talents into our kids. Not in ancient times. They were, to be harsh, expendable. Given the high infant mortality rates, you couldn't get too attached to your children in that sense. Which means disciples, when Jesus said receive a child, would not have thought about a small boy being great. This was far too little a concept for them to see greatness in. But Jesus didn't. Second, when Jesus says receive, it has the idea of willing accept and embrace. So Jesus says that that greatness in his kingdom is shown by how we treat, for example, those who are not often considered great in society's eyes, those who take energy, those who have a disability of some type, those who exaggerate all the time, those that are from another culture that are displaced, 
those that live next door to us that we don't know yet, those that are different to us, that we seem estranged. Into this, Jesus says what greatness is from the one who went out of his way to serve his enemies, love the lost, who died for them, to welcome and accept them as children in his kingdom. Thirdly, then notice that Jesus says the way we welcome and respond to people reflects our response to God. Whoever receives a child in my name receives me. Don't miss the last part. For the disciples, they were to welcome a child as if they were welcoming him. Can you see that Jesus turns greatness upside down here? You know what this means, don't you? The challenge for me and for you is that greatness doesn't look very great. Or at least, it won't look great the way we'd normally think about it. It's redefined by serving, not being served. Jesus has served you and me, after all, by suffering and dying. And from this, we serve others, not to fill a need, not to get my ego stroked, but in love for God. And these 12 men have been busted in the act of self-seeking greatness and all the ugliness that comes from it. And so I wonder, perhaps, right now, this morning, are you feeling a little like you've been busted in the act of pursuing greatness? That God might be opening up the deep reaches of your heart and revealing just how much you long to be great and have your name in lights. And maybe you're using him as a way to do that. So let me finish on three points. First of all, I think we need to admit that in this story, we're more like the disciples than we imagine. I know I've often got greatness wrong. The disciples did. We do it. Jesus redirects it. To what? To whom? Himself. You know, we can repent from our own greatness and pursuit of it. Because my idea of greatness can't really make me great. Not the way we've been designed for it anyway. Secondly, we almost see that Jesus doesn't shun pleasure or greatness. He just redeems it and redirects it so that it can be attached to the true object of greatness we've been made for. Psalm 1611 declares, You made known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullest joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is, don't make a God out of pleasure. We're made for the joy and pleasure of God. So we should pursue it. God is the object of greatness. And thirdly, finally, we need to ask ourselves the question and generally wrestle with it. How do we feel with those that are little in this world? If Jesus' words ring true, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, how will I respond to those in my week that show the gospel that's still at work and outworking in me? Have I taken notice of those who other people don't? And so at the start, I asked you the question, what would make you great? And maybe by now, you'd be in a better position to answer it. So I leave you with the way that John the Baptist answered it when Jesus started to become greater and greater and his ministry took a beating. He lost a lot of followers. But he said, this joy of mine is now complete. Jesus must become more important while I become less important. Oh, that each of us would find the greatness we long for, not inside us, not pursuing or outside, but in Jesus, the one who came to seek and serve and save the lost. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are the great Holy One, that in you, you rescue and redeem us. As we reflect this week on what it means to be great, may we find the answer in you. Rescue us from our own faulty, sinful attempts at being great. And may we find our joy and pleasure in you and you alone. Amen.